welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. I'm Christina O'Donnell. Why would young British women willingly convert to a religion in which men require them to submit to their authority without question, following rules that strike liberal Westerners as insulting and self-abasing? We're talking about young female Salafi Muslims who move in circles so suspicious of outsiders that it's been difficult to answer that question with any authority until now. Dr. Annabelle Ng gained unique access to this community for her book, The Making of a Salafi Muslim Woman, Paths to Conversion. Annabelle is our guest today. Let's begin with reading just one paragraph that captures the flavour of this extraordinary book. For instance, at a circle at the house of Fatima, an Algerian in her 30s, we were in the hall preparing to leave when our host's husband returned home from work earlier than expected. There was a sudden rush to the nearest room. Four of us crammed into the bathroom so that he could pass without catching a glimpse of us. As we looked at one another, four fully grown women shut up in a tiny room as though playing a game of sardines we had to fight hard to restrain the urge to laugh. Anna, well, can you give us some idea of the, the sort of detail and the scope of the rules that, that these women are expected to follow? Well, Salafis are interesting because they have rules for just about everything. And these include, for women most distinctively, practices such as the face veil or niqab, which is considered to be at least recommended, if not mandatory, for women. Also, if you're a woman, you should be primarily a wife or homemaker to your husband. And that wifely role would include obedience to your husband at all times, so long as he's not asking you to break the rules of your religion, such as not praying, for example. But Salafi rules would encompass also things that might seem quite trivial or mundane, things like lavatory etiquette, which foot you enter the lavatory with and which foot you leave the lavatory with. And detailed instructions in between? Sorry to ask. But That's so gross. <laughs> um, there would be certainly certain rules, like, for example, you're not allowed to speak while on the lavatory seat. So uh, right. I was once told by a teacher in a Salafi study circle that if somebody calls your name while you're on the loo, you should clap or otherwise indicate that you, you cannot respond, but you have heard them. Sorry to press you on this point. <laughs> Tell me about the other rule. Well, it's who you, who you mix with, who you marry, you're not allowed. I mean, I thought it was an extraordinary catalogue. You know, it made Opus Dei look like a kind of sensationalist sex sect. This was, it ranged from polygamy to which hand to use when washing yourself. I mean, it is quite, quite rigorous. And at one point you put, every act can be seen as a way to worship or to sin. So all these young women whom you interviewed were caught always between heaven and hell, between sin and a brilliant way of celebrating Allah. Yeah, so I went to countless Salafi study circles in mosques around London over nearly two and a half years of fieldwork. And something that we were constantly told by teachers was that virtually almost every action falls into several categories that determine your heavenly reward or 
punishment in hell. So, for example, you have actions that are mandatory, such as fasting during Ramadan, wearing a headscarf. You have actions that are just recommended, and that would include probably the niqab or the face veil. And for those, if you do them, you get bonus points that help on Judgment Day. But if you don't do them, there's no sin on you. And then you have the bad acts such as drinking alcohol, which would be haram. So if you did that, then you would, you would have a sin on you that would weigh against you on Judgment Day. And then you have disliked acts such as the one I mentioned earlier, if you speak while on the lavatory seat. If you do those acts, then there's no sin on you, but you're rewarded from staying away from them. And by having this framework constantly drummed into them, the women were acutely conscious all the time of their balance of good and bad deeds, if you like, and constantly striving to build up their good deeds during the course of the day and encouraged to do so by their teachers. Why would women seek out this way of life? It seems not particularly fun, to put it bluntly. I sympathise. That was my impression when I first stumbled upon this community. And what I found was so interesting about them was that the vast majority of women who make up the Salafi community in Britain are converts in one way or another. They come from either non-Muslim backgrounds. I met lots of Afro-Caribbean converts, for example, but I also met other kinds of converts, Jehovah's Witnesses, those who came from atheist backgrounds, but also born Muslim families. And they would probably make up the majority of Salafis in Britain. But they've still come from far less conservative backgrounds and they've had to undergo a conversion process to really transform their beliefs and practices to make them compatible with Salafism. And what drove them to do that, I found in interviews that because of the diversity of the Salafi community, everybody had different stories for how they became involved in the community. But they all said, this is something I'm intellectually convinced by. This is something I see as pure, authentic Islam, rooted in the scripture, the words of God, and therefore convincing and more convincing than any of the other Islamic interpretations they'd come across. And they spoke of security and certainty, didn't they? They felt rooted, finally, in this strict, strict code. They knew exactly where they stood, where they could go, where they couldn't aspire to. Absolutely, you're quite right. Several of the women told me, actually, they felt a sense of liberation and inner peace, as they often put it, at not having to think because they had one of them said, an instruction manual to life that gave them really instructions for anything that they wanted to do. As I said before, anything from going going to the lavatory to uh, really quite important life decisions like who to marry and which career to pursue and so on. Well, they they may have found inner peace and that's nice for them, but doesn't necessarily give ordinary members of the British public, a sense of inner peace, knowing that so many women and men are so sequestered from the mainstream of British life and and British culture. And it does rather raise the question, what relationship do these women have with Islamists who truly despise our way of life in this country? And also, maybe a slightly separate question with jihadists who, who pose a violent threat to it. So the vast majority of Salafis in the UK are not only non-violent, but also 
at complete odds with and quite hostile towards these kinds of groups you're referring to. And that would absolutely include any group that advocates violence, terrorism. And actually what I found was that Salafi leaders have been very outspoken against these groups, against ISIS, against Al-Qaeda before them for a number of years. Recently we had an attack on Westminster and one of the Salafi leaders that I interviewed came out and spoke to the media and said that the terrorist was closer to Satanism than to Islam. So that gives you a sense of how polarized they see themselves and their ideology compared to those of the jihadis. What Salafis do believe is that jihad is possible but within such strict conditions. They see the position of Muslims around the world as being one of moral crisis. Muslims need to, according to Salafis, understand the basic principles of their religion, such as the principle of Islamic monotheism or Tawheed, and really get to grips with those fundamentals of their religion before they can even talk about political activities, let alone a caliphate, let alone violence. And they would absolutely forbid any violence that involves suicide, attacking civilians, or anything like that. Okay, but, you know, having read your book, which I must say I think is completely brilliant, but I did sometimes sense that there were grey areas. For example, in, in Brixton, I think you talked about how there are Salafi groups where people have a background in street crime and drugs and gang culture, and that makes women feel uncomfortable. And it tends to be those backgrounds that produce at least the you know, freelance terrorists who crop up from time to time. You're right in that a number of Salafis do come from the gang culture, we can say. And that included, by the way, some of the women as oh, well, who may have been more on the periphery. But for example, I interviewed women who dated gang leaders in the past before they converted to Islam in some cases or to Salafism in other cases. But what I would say is, as the first researcher who's done in-depth research and spent nearly two and a half years in this community, I can tell you that I got to know these women. I became inconspicuous. I became part of the furniture, if you like, and I never once came across anything even mildly suspicious. I only ever heard people mention jihadism, terrorism, these sorts of things in the context of condemning it and being horrified by it. And yet they were also horrified by our secular way of life. In some instances, the points they, they raise are absolutely right. You know, they say this extraordinary sexualization and they hide behind their modest niqab as a reaction to that. And that was completely understandable and you could accept it. Less easy for me to, to accept was their embracing of the polygamy concept because they say you know it's so it's so important for us as women to understand that the male is the authority figure and there was this one horrifying anecdote which Annabelle includes in the book of a Salafi preacher who goes to I think it was Birmingham and he goes to speak and in the audience he spots a pretty girl and he says right I'm going to marry you tonight so after the speech he marries her then he drives off back home and he <laughs> calls her up and says, by the way, I've now divorced you. Now, that is, you know, it's very funny, if somewhat sinister. But it also shows the gulf between the world they are rejecting, which is our world, and their extraordinary, rigid, isolated scheme of morse, 
Mm, the anecdote you're referring to is actually one that was mentioned by a blogger who is anonymous, and I can't actually verify that story. It wouldn't surprise me, though, if it's true. I think there are men in the Salafi community, and Salafi women would be the first to tell you this, who will take advantage of the patriarchal norms that they celebrate. And polygamy is something that actually has strict conditions, according to Salafi teachings. So while it is in the recommended category, because the Prophet himself did it, you cannot, as a man, take more than one wife if you are unable to provide for them financially as a number one first condition. And Salafi women were telling me they know for sure that Salafi brothers in London were not meeting that condition. They weren't able to provide for more than one wife. And they got the impression, some of them told me, that they were taking extra wives to satisfy sexual desires. And what I found was actually the Salafi women were not queuing up to be second wives. They accepted that this was part of their religion. They accepted that it was even recommended and praiseworthy. But some of them would actually take steps to avoid it if they possibly could. For example, they told me that they were planning to insert a clause into their marriage contract saying that if their husband took a second wife, they would have to divorce the first wife. Do you think there are analogies with other ultra-conservative religious groups that, that aren't Muslim, for example? I remember an earlier conversation with you when I said, of what benefit to society are these groups, are these women? And you said, well, you might very well ask the same question about ultra-Orthodox Jews. And I said, well, yes, you might very well ask that same question, but I'm, I'm interested in the similarities. Yes, there could well be some, some strong similarities there. Certainly you find groups such as Orthodox Jews, possibly the Amish as well as another example, would tend to isolate themselves to some degree from wider society, despite living in the thick of it, if you like, in a big city like London. They will have strongly distinctive dress codes, strongly defined gender roles, very restricted lifestyles for the women in particular. And in some cases, they'll have a different language and different institutions, different schools. What I found with Salafis is that they are native English speakers and they tend to come from non-Muslim or non-Salafi Muslim families. So they are at least anchored in non-Muslim or wider society from that perspective. Do do they they, struggle learning Arabic? Yes, well, it's very praiseworthy if you're a Salafi to learn Arabic. So a lot of the women would take steps to try to learn it. But it was a struggle because they they were native English speakers. They spoke with South London accents. It was as hard for them as it was for me to try to learn Arabic and keep up with the kind of scriptural teachings that they were expected to do. I can't help wondering if we're getting a glimpse of the future of religion because, as you know perfectly well, there's so much data to suggest that high-tension religions, you might call them religions that make extraordinary demands of people, although not necessarily numerically all that strong, do do flourish in a way that liberal religion doesn't. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the interesting comments that one of your interviewees made was about how she loved her strong sisters because to face all the battles, all the assaults that get thrown at them every day, they have to stand so firm. And of course it's true, you know, if you wear a niqab, if you accept to be one of four wives, if you start rejecting education, as so many of them were doing, even those who were in the middle of studying for their degree, then you really are putting your head above the parapet. You are saying, here I am, I am different. And these women, felt 
that strengthened their sense of community. It was a, a real us-against-them mentality, which I fear is what Damien means about the, you know, the future of religion will be such a divided and divisive community. One of the reasons why the veil doesn't completely freak me out when I'm walking down the streets of London is because I was raised by nuns. I was educated by nuns, and so to me, this is not such a, an extraordinary piece of garment. However, I have seen the reaction of people when they see a niqab-clad woman in the streets, and it is one of the... <laughs> you have to say, I find you average modern social activist American nun far more off-putting <laughs> than those old veiled nuns you're talking about. But Could sorry, you stop sorry. being okay. so blasphemous? Yeah. Annabelle, if you could explain a little bit about why do they don this mask-like piece of clothing? So the, the face veil or the niqab has many meanings for, for different Salafi women. It depends on who you speak to. A common theme was that they were wearing it to obey their God, as they put it. This was one of those acts that was in the obligatory category or recommended for most of them. But there were also various other meanings it had for them. Certainly there will be some Salafi women who wear it because they want to isolate themselves from wider society and there raises questions about integration and so on. But there will also be other reasons such as making an identity statement, you know, I am Muslim, deal with it kind of yes. thing. This is my uniform, one of them told me. Okay, but what about what that uniform can conceal? What about security questions? So I spoke to many Salafi women about this issue of what about when you're, for example, at an airport, can people verify your identity and how do you feel about that? Because obviously they wanted to keep it on at all times where men were present. And what they told me was really interesting. They told me that actually they had no problem whatsoever taking it off for these sorts of reasons. There's a principle in Sharia called darura, which means necessity. And they believe that it was a strong part of their religion that they should compromise on these sorts of principles where necessity takes over. And safety and security reasons would be a very obvious number one reason for that to occur. One Salafi woman that I spoke to who was about 40 had a teenage son who kept getting into trouble, unfortunately, and he got put in a young offenders institution. And she told me, she wore a full face veil, full time. And she told me that the first time she went to visit him, when she entered the institution, she was asked to remove her veil. And I said, well, was that a problem for you? And she said, actually, it gave me such a relief to know that my son was safe and that people weren't smuggling in knives or whatever, things that could harm him. And so what I found was actually they were very keen to remove their veils because they, like everybody else, care about somebody getting on that plane who might want to do them harm. And they had no problem religiously justifying that. I also found that in other contexts where um, veils might be a barrier to communication, and that was something that concerned me as well, they were also willing to make compromises where this was very obviously going to impede communication. I'm sure there will be Salafi women out there who are stubborn about this sort of things such as being a teacher for example but I found I interviewed many Salafi teachers who were absolutely willing to take off their veils and if they had a problem with it they would deliberately teach only women or teach primary school kids who wouldn't be a problem because they were too young for that to matter. Well The Making of a Salafi Muslim Woman Path to Conversion by Annabelle Ng is published by Oxford University Press. I would say that if you want to understand British Islam you need to read it.
Annabelle, thank you very much for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to Holy Smoke Podcast on iTunes. And we have a special offer for podcast listeners. 12 issues for £12 plus a very special Spectator Moleskin notebook. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash pod offer.